All right, good morning, everyone. Congratulations, you made it on Daylight Savings Time. It's always, a, always an accomplishment. Uh, it's good to be here this morning. Welcome to Walnut Creek Church. If you are new with us and we have not had a chance to meet, my name is Cole Myers, and I serve as one of the pastors here at our Windsor Heights location. And as a church, what we have been doing over the last several months is studying through the book of Genesis. And today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 13. But before we get into our sermon this morning, I've got a couple announcements that I want to highlight for us. Uh, the first is next week, March 19th, is our Together Spring Gathering. And so what this means is we will not be having two separate services, one at 9 a.m. and one at 10.30. We will be having one service at 10 a.m. That is next Sunday, March 19th. Join us at 10 a.m. for worship. We did this one time in uh, 2022, and it was a wonderful encouragement. It was a lot of fun just to be together. Our intention is to do this quarterly in the year 2023. So we'll have our together spring gathering, together summer gathering, together fall gathering, and our together winter gathering. And that winter one will likely just be our Christmas Eve service when we're all together for that. And so I think it's going to be an encouraging time for us just to be together, to sing together, to pray together, to hear God's word together, to fellowship together. So a couple of things for that. The doors will open at 9 a.m. next week. And uh, we'll have some light breakfast items set out. And we would encourage you to join us starting at 9 a.m. for a time of fellowship, uh, just to be intentional and encouraging one another with the word and, and just enjoying one another um, before the Lord. Worship will start at 10 a.m., so if you come at 9 a.m., we'll make our way down here. The nursery will open at 9.45. And so if you do come at 9 a.m., the nursery won't be open quite yet, but 9.45, we'll be able to start checking kids into the nursery. We will be also be offering kids' class through second grade. So kids' classes typically run through fifth grade. It means if you have a third, fourth, or fifth grader that's currently up in kids' class, next week they will be with you in the service, okay? And that's just because of the limitations that we have with space and with our volunteer capacity for kids' class. Um, so that's the first announcement. The second announcement is that this week is the last week we will be in Genesis for a while. So starting next Sunday, when we're all together, March 19th, we are jumping back into the book of Luke. So over the several summer, many summers, we've been going through the book of Luke, and we are going to be starting in Luke 23, right in the midst of the trial of Jesus as he's led up to his crucifixion. And so that starts next week. That'll take us through our Easter series. And then sometime beginning of May, we'll finish Luke up and then jump back into Genesis chapter 14 um, and continue that through the summer. So that's just a little bit of what's coming. Um, so you can have that in your mind. Uh, but this morning, like I mentioned, we are in Genesis 13. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them up to Genesis chapter 13. It's got the whole, we have the whole chapter this morning. And we're just going to begin by reading our text together. So Genesis 13. Here's what it says. Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he, his wife, and all he had, and Lot with him. Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. He went by stages from the Negev to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had form formerly been, to the site where he built the altar. And Abram called on the name of the Lord there. Now Lot, who was traveling with Abram, also had flocks, herds, and tents. But the land was unable to support them as long as they stayed together, for they had so many possessions that they could not stay together, and there was quarreling between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please, let's not have quarreling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, since we are relatives. Isn't the whole land before you? Separate from me. If you go to the left... I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. Lot looked out and saw that the entire plain of the Jordan as far as Zoar was well watered everywhere, like the Lord's garden and the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself. Then Lot journeyed eastward, and they separated from each other. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. 
After Lot had separated from him, the Lord said to Abram, Look from the place where you are. Look north and south, east and west, for I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. Get up and walk around the land through its length and width, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and went to live near the oaks of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. Okay, so that's the text that we'll be diving into this morning. And before we do that, I just invite you to spend some time praying. Okay? Anytime we approach God's word, whether it's on our own, in our own times with the Lord, or corporately when we gather, I think it is always good and right to pray, to approach God in prayer. And as we pray, I think we just want to be reminded of a few, th- few things. We want to remind our hearts, first, who God is. Second, we, re- we want to remind ourselves what God has done for us in the gospel of grace through Christ. And thirdly, we want to acknowledge our dependence on him. We are dependent on God for everything, including our ability to understand his word and respond to it rightly. Okay, and so before I jump into the passage, I'm just going to invite you to stick your heads together and pray with someone who you're near, reminding yourselves who God is, what he's done for us, and our need for him. If you're more comfortable just praying on your own, that's fine too. But I'll bring us back together and pray, and then we'll jump into our passage this morning. Go ahead. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the opportunity that we have to gather this morning. You brought us together that we might receive from you first. Uh, You are all-powerful, you are supreme, you are above all things, and yet you've invited us to know you into a relationship with you through the blood of your Son. We thank you for that. We thank you for your word and that you've revealed yourself to us through your word. And God, we ask that you would help us to understand it rightly this morning. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to respond to the truth of your word. We need your grace for this and we thank you that it's ours in Christ. Pray it in his name. Amen. Alrighty. Can you guys think of your most embarrassing moment? And you think, I would rather not. <laughs> I have several. <laughs> I have several most embarrassing moments. Uh, as I get older, they're happening less and less frequently, which means I'm either growing in prudence and discernment, or I just don't care much about what people think about me anymore. Or I just lack awareness of what is socially acceptable behavior these days. Maybe a combination of all those three. But here, here's one of my best slash worst most embarrassing moments. So a few years back, I was teaching at a high school in Des Moines, and I, at around the time, I had just figured out like the Find My Friend app on the iPhone, and so I was at work, and I was curious what my wife was up to, and so I opened up the Find My Friend, and I saw that my wife was at the grocery store, and so we had three kids at the time, and so if you have kids, then you understand that going to the grocery store is sometimes not a big deal at all, other times it's a really big deal, um, and I thought, man, I just, my wife is the best. You know, she's taking the kids to the grocery store. I'm just going to make sure she knows that she's the best. So I texted her. I said, hey, I just want you to know I love you. And with a little kissy heart emoji face with it. And then I returned to grading my papers. And a couple minutes later, my vice principal showed up in my classroom with a very puzzled look on her face. She said, did you mean to text me that? 
And see, there was a situation earlier that day, and I had been texting her. So naturally, I said, yeah, I'm pretty sure that was meant to go to you. And I looked down at my phone, and I realized I did not text my wife. And so I just looked up, and I laughed, and I said, oh, no, 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 that was supposed to go to my wife. I'm sorry. And then she laughed, too. But it wasn't like the, ha, 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 this is a funny situation laugh. It was like a, oh, this is really awkward and embarrassing for you laugh. And then she just kind of walked away. And I thought, I don't ever want to see her again. Too bad I work with her. I want to avoid her in the hallways and lock my door when I hear her coming. I wanted to avoid her, right? When we are embarrassed, we want to avoid whatever is causing the embarrassment. Embarrassment, it's not the only thing that causes us to want to avoid others, though. See, when we know that we've offended others, we want to avoid them. When we know that we've failed to meet others' expectations or we don't feel approved by others, we want to avoid them. And last week, Pastor Mike taught us through Genesis 12, and he worked through Abram's failure to walk in faith and obedience to the Lord in Egypt. Right? He failed to obey God. He let God down, in a sense. He did not obey the call that God had for him. And when he came to that realization, we would expect Abram to want to avoid the Lord. Very similar to what Adam and Eve did in the garden when they realized their own sin. We would expect him to try to cover his shame or distance himself further from God. That is not what happened. See, instead, Abram returns to the altar of God in Genesis 13. To the place where God had called him and there he worships. And so the big question that we want to answer this morning is why? What causes Abram to be able to come back to God and worship rather than continue to avoid him and hold him at a distance? And the answer to that question is, we're going to look at it right away, and it's this main point that we're going to trace throughout Genesis 13 this morning. The answer is this. Obedience to the call of God is driven by belief in the promise of God. Obedience to the call of God is driven by belief in the promise of God. We're going to trace this throughout Genesis 13 by chunking the, the chapter into four main sections. And these sections are similar to the outline that we had last week with Pastor Mike. But the first one, it's the return. Second, we'll look at the retest. Third, it's the response. And fourth, it's the result. The return, the retest, the response, and the result. And through our time this morning, my hope is that we will have greater clarity around this truth that obedience to God, it is driven by belief in the promise of God. And so first, we look at the return. Chapters or chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, here's what we read. Abram went up from, the Negev, or from Egypt to the Negev, he, his wife, and all he had, and Lot with him. Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. He went by stages from the Negev to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had formerly been, to the site where he had built the altar, and Abram called on the name of the Lord there. I think these four verses, they are incredible. But what they cause us to do is they cause us to look in three different places. They cause us to look back and behind us. They cause us to look ahead. And then they cause us to look within ourselves. And that's what we're gonna, how we're going to chunk these four verses. So first, we look back. And if, you're with us last, if you weren't with us last week, or you're joining us for the first time this morning, then here's just a little bit of context for what's going on. So in Genesis 12, we're introduced to this man named Abram, who later becomes Abraham, who is the father and hero of the faith that we know. But when we first meet him, that is not who he is. Abram is far from that. He is, he's a pagan moon worshiper with no knowledge of the one true God. See, up until the moment God called him, he had been living a life in complete contrast to the life that God would have for him. But in Genesis 12, God calls Abram. He calls Abram to go, to leave his country, to leave his family, to leave his home, and to journey to a new land that God would show him. 
And following this call, God then promises Abram that he will make him into a great nation and that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. And in verse 4 of Genesis 12, it says that Abram went as the Lord told him. And when he arrived at the place to which God had called him, in verse 8, it says that he built an altar to the Lord there and he called on the name of the Lord. That's what we read in in chapter 12 of Genesis. And so here what I want to do is start mapping out a progression of events so that we can have great clarity as to what the author of Genesis is trying to emphasize in chapter 13. Okay? So Genesis 12 8, it says Abram called on the name of the Lord. 12, 9, it says that Abram journeyed by stages to the Negev. And verse 10 of chapter 12, it says there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. So chronologically, here's what we see. Abram called on the name of the Lord. Abram journeyed by stages to the Negev. The famine came and it was severe or heavy. And number four, Abram went down to Egypt. Okay, so that's the chronology of the events going on in chapter 12. But then we get to chapter 13. And if we compare the language in chapter 12 with the language of chapter 13, 1 through 4, what we see is a complete reversal of events. Okay, verse 1, it tells us that Abram went up from Egypt. And being in Egypt had made Abram and Lot very rich. And so we read that they were rich in livestock, silver, and gold. And verse 3 tells us that he journeyed by stages from the Negev back to the altar he had built. And then verse 4 tells us he called on the name of the Lord. So chronologically, compared with these events, we see that he went up from Egypt. Abram was rich in possessions, or heavy. That's the same word there that's translated... um, Severe in Genesis 12, it's translated rich here, but it's the same word meaning heavy. And the author, I think, is doing that to show that this is indeed a reversal. It's a contrast of events. Verse 3, Abram journeyed by stages from the Negev. And verse 4, Abram called on the name of the Lord. These are the events in contrast between 12 and 13. But you know what's sandwiched right in the middle of these events? as one big mess. Where Abram goes to Egypt and he's in a position of feeling like he needs to protect himself at the expense of his wife. He tells his wife Sarai to pretend to be his sister so that the Egyptians won't kill him. He got himself into a mess. He's walking in disobedience and rebellion to the Lord. God does not allow things to get very far. What happens is he brings on a number of plagues against Pharaoh and his house. And so Abram and his wife are forced to leave Egypt. But I think what the author is doing is he's using the same language on either side of that big epic mess to emphasize that even though Abram made an incredible mistake in Egypt, he left the land, he went to Egypt away from where God had called him, He came back. He intentionally returned back to the Lord. Why did he do this? Because his obedience to the call of God was driven by belief in the promise of God. And we'll see this as we work through it. So this intentional return in chapter 13, it's a look back at at his him leaving to Egypt, but it's also a look ahead. And it's a look ahead because if you are familiar with the biblical storyline, or you know what happens in the book of Exodus, you might be scratching your head a little thinking, this sounds familiar to me. See, I know of another story when God called his people out of Egypt and into a promised land by sending a number of plagues on Pharaoh and his household. There's a parallel here. And if we look at the event in Exodus, through a lens of biblical theology, then we understand that the plagues on Pharaoh and Egypt in Exodus, and the Passover, and the Exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, and the parting of the Red Sea, and the destruction of Pharaoh's armies, they all serve to point us to a much greater gospel, the gospel of Christ. How God called his people out of slavery to sin by making a way where there seemed to be no way, by the shed blood of Christ. There is... Much more that we could dive into 
if we look at how this points to the gospel of grace. But since I usually only have about three or four hours here, I think we're just going to go ahead and move on. Just kidding. Um, it's, it's a look behind. It is a look ahead. This passage in Genesis, or Genesis 13, it's a look ahead to the gospel of grace. But it's also a look within. It's a look within. Because here, Abram, if you think about his situation, at this point, he's probably completely dejected, fully aware of his lack of faith in God, fully aware of how he has failed his wife. I think he was far more than embarrassed. He was likely full of shame and regret before the Lord. And remember, when that's how we feel, what's our natural impulse? It's to avoid. It's to step away. But Abram doesn't avoid God. Instead, in view of God's promise to him, he returns back to a life of faith and obedience. That's what he does. But here's a question I want you to consider as you think about Abram's return to faith. When you screw up, what is your attitude towards yourself? When you, when you realize that you've dropped the ball, either in big ways or small ways, where does your mind go? I think for many of us, there are probably two different ditches that we find ourselves in. And there's varying degrees of how far into one ditch or the other we find ourselves. But the first ditch, it's the ditch of denial. We might have a hard time admitting that we have failed, admitting that we were wrong. We might look for ways to justify ourselves or to point the finger and to shift blame at someone or something else for the reason why we failed. We might think to ourselves, well, it's not really that big of a deal. And we convince ourselves that we have it all together and there's really no need for apology or repentance. That's one ditch that we can find ourselves in. The other ditch is the ditch of despair. When we realize that we failed, when we realize that we make a mistake, then that's all we can see. We look in the mirror and we think, what a pathetic excuse for a human. One little mistake can turn into comments like, I am such a failure. I can't do anything right. I'm nothing but a burden and a nuisance to those around me. Those are the two ditches. And you know that there's something in common between those two ditches? We fall into the ditch of denial or the ditch of despair for the very same reason. It's because we can't stand the reality that we don't measure up. We can't stand the fact that we have failed. So we either deny it or we despair it. But I've got to tell you something. You don't measure up. You never have. And you never will. None of us measures up to the perfect standard that God has for us. That is why Jesus died. If we could measure up, there'd be no need for Christ to give his life for us on the cross. We don't measure up. Abraham did not measure up, but Abram didn't deny or despair his own failure. He did something else. What did he do? He returned to God. He recalled the promise of God and went back. His obedience to the call of God, it was driven by his belief in the promise of God. You know what this means? It means that even though we can't measure up and we won't measure up, God's perfect we don't measure up to God's perfect standard, there is still hope for us. We'll dive more into that in a little bit, but for now, we have to see there is hope for us. God did not give up on Abram. He does not give up on, on us. Instead, what he does is he sanctifies us. He conforms us more into his image through our failures, through our mistakes. And that is a good thing. When we fail the test, God uses it. And that is a good thing because there is more testing that is coming our way. There always is. Throughout our lifetime, we will regularly encounter moments, both big and small, that test our faith. See, the famine, it was not the only test that Abraham faced. 
in life. The next couple of verses reveal another test in his life. This is the retest. God is testing his faith again. This is the second point. In verse 5, this is what we read in the text. It says, Now Lot, who was traveling with Abram, also had flocks, herds, and tents. But the land was unable to support them as long as they stayed together, for they had so many possessions that they could not stay together. And there was quarreling between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were living in the land. So the initial test back in Genesis 12 was a famine. It was a lack of essential resources. The test in Genesis 13, it's the exact opposite. It's an abundance of resources. But there's still testing, which means that we cannot necessarily avoid the testing of our faith. Not having things can certainly test our faith. Having things can certainly test our faith. Neither poverty nor wealth will automatically position us to walk in obedience to the Lord. So if being poor doesn't automatically position us, and neither does being wealthy, what is it that automatically positions us to being faithful to the Lord? What is it? Obedience to the call of God is driven by Belief in the promise of God. It is faith in God's promises that position us to obey the Lord, to respond to the call of God. So Abram was, once again, he was put to this test in Genesis 12. So instead of a lack, he had an overabundance, so much so that the land could not support them. And Abram's guys, they weren't getting along well with Lot's guys. And Abram realized something should probably be done about this. And in Genesis 12, what Abram did is he took matters into his own hands. And he, he positioned himself so that it was what was best for him. He wanted to protect himself and preserve himself. And he responds differently now to the testing here in Genesis 13. And so this is the third point on the outline, the response. And Abram, he had a couple options for how he could respond to this. The first option is he could have chosen passivity. He could have done nothing. He could have realized the problem and just waited for how things were going to play out. It probably would have been an epic bloodbath between Lot's herdsmen and Abram's herdsmen. But he could have chosen that. Secondly, he could have chosen aggression. He could have asserted himself as the rightful role and the head of the clan and used that to, to, to choose the best looking land for himself. He would have taken matters into his own hands to protect himself and force Lot to fend for himself. He could have done that, or he could have chosen selfless, gracious, problem-solving. And that's what he did. See, we, say, we see Abram take initiative to solve the problem, and in doing so, he puts Lot before himself. Abram gave up his rightful position and deferred to what Lot would prefer. Why did he do this? I think because he learned his lesson in Egypt. Right? He learned that it didn't do any good. It only created harm to take hold of a situation and attempt to protect himself. See, a life of self-preservation never accomplishes the goal of self-preservation. That's a biblical principle we see all throughout Scripture, that when we seek to save our life, we lose it. God has not called us to a life of self-preservation. And so I imagine that Abram thought to himself to some degree, well, the last time I was tested, I failed to love and protect my wife for my own sake. I don't want to make that mistake again. I don't want to look out just for my own interests. Instead, I want to look out for the interests of others. And so here's what we read in chapter 13, verse 8. It says, So Abram said to Lot, Please, let's not have quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen since we are relatives. Isn't the whole land before you? Separate from me. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. So Abram is, is offering Lot this land. But what's the problem with this? There's something that doesn't quite sit right with this. In Genesis 12, before Abram journeyed down to Egypt, God promised the land to Abram, to 
Abram's offspring, not Lot's. And so there's this question that lingers in my mind. I, I want like an extra verse in the passage here that gives us a window into Abram's motive. Because there's not a verse that says, Abram completely forgot about the Lord's promise and as a result gave up the land to Lot. And there's also not a verse that said, Abram, full of complete and unwavering confidence in the promise of God, offered up the land to Lot, knowing full well that God would not allow Lot to possess the land in the end. Right? I'm, I'm more inclined to believe that was Abram's motive. It's just, it's just not there. It's just not in the text for us. Which tells us it's likely not Abram's motive that we're to analyze most here. See, was Abram walking in perfect, faithful obedience to the Lord? Or was he taking matters into his own hand just in a less selfish manner? We could make assumptions. But the text does not give clarity. What it does, though, is it narrates the result of this proposal. It helps us see what what comes after this proposal. And as we see this, we see a demonstration once again of God's unthwarted faithfulness. And as we see that, I think that's what we want to pay attention to in the text. The faithfulness of God to accomplish the purposes that he had given Abram. And so the last point on the outline, the results, here's what we see. Verse 10, Lot looked out and saw that the entire plain of the Jordan as far as Zoar was well watered everywhere like the Lord's garden and the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself. Then Lot journeyed eastward and they separated from each other. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. This is the result. And there's three things that we need to observe. Three observations that we need to make about Lot's response to Abram's proposal. And we're going to make these these observations in reverse order chronologically. Okay? So the first thing we want to observe is this. What direction did Lot go? He went east. This is the first observation. This is not good. Okay? Just to connect some dots here. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden, away from the presence of the Lord. It says this, He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim in the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. And then in Genesis 4, Cain murders Abel. And it says that Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And then we read in Genesis 11, we're introduced to the Tower of Babel. We read that these people migrated there from the east. We see examples of the east come up throughout Genesis, and it becomes clear that anytime the author mentions east in isolation, it's bad news. And we get to Genesis 13, and we look at what Lot's about to do, and we think, Lot, don't do it. Any other direction but east, Lot. And he doesn't. Lot goes eastward. He goes east, away from the presence and blessing of the Lord. He doesn't go east because the Lord told him to go east. He went east because he chose to go there. This is the second observation we make. Lot chose to go there. It says he chose the entire plain for himself. There's no mention of seeking the Lord or calling on his name. For guidance or wisdom, Lot chose his land for himself. And why did he do it? It's our third observation. It's because he saw it. He looked with his eyes and he saw the land. And he decided for himself to go east, away from the presence and blessing of the Lord. Which means Lot journeyed out of the land that was promised to Abram. So even though Abram had offered to give a portion of the land to Lot, it was still in Abram's possession in totality. God was faithful. And then God comes to Abram after Lot leaves. And he comes to Abram and he reaffirms the promise that he had made to him back in Genesis 12. Verse 14, it says, After Lot had separated from him, the Lord said to Abram, Look from the place where you are. Look north and south, east and west, for I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. And then God adds 
a layer to this promise. Okay, God's promises often they, they come in layers. So then verse 16, he says this, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. Get up, walk around the land through its length and width for I will give it to you. This creates incredible contrast between Abram and Lot and what is fueling their decisions. It's further demonstrating that Abram is walking by faith because Abram did not choose the land that he saw for himself. God chose the land that God showed him. God told him to get up and walk around and look around the promised land. Abram didn't tell himself to do that. And then God's promise, it extends beyond the land and it includes his offspring. Now, how does this demonstrate faith? Well, at this point, Abram and Sarai, they were barren. They had no children. And God is sitting here telling Abram, your offspring are going to be innumerable, like the dust of the earth. So in this, Abram is looking very much to what he cannot see, something far beyond the physical land in front of him. God came to Abram in this moment and he reaffirmed his promise to Abram. But just imagine something. Imagine being Abram and hearing the reaffirmation of the promise. Hearing the promise again after his incredible failure in Egypt. After he had dropped the ball. God's promise to Abram, it still stands even after his failure. Abram's failure did not thwart God's purpose. Lot did not thwart God's purpose. God's purpose was going to prevail through Abram. But there's something we need to grasp. And it's that each of us has been or is or will be in some degree in the exact same boat as Abram. We touched on this already, but what I mean is that failure, failure is inevitable. And when I say failure, what I, what I don't mean is like failure in school, like failing a test in school. That's not what I mean. Or failing at a recipe. Man, you just can't get that recipe right. You're failing. Or failing to remember where you placed your keys. That's, you, you laugh. <laughs> I do that all the time. It's not what I'm, it's not what I'm talking about. What I mean is failing to trust the Lord and walk in faithful obedience to him. That's the failure I'm talking about. Now I want you to imagine something. I want you to picture yourself right now standing in the physical presence of God Almighty. You are face to face with the Lord Jesus himself. Imagine that you are in the physical presence of the one who spoke the entire universe into existence. You are in the physical presence of the one who by his powerful word is currently sustaining all things. You are in the presence of the giver of life and the author of love and the conqueror of death. You are in the presence of the one who is all-knowing and all-wise and all-powerful. The one who knows your heart, who knows your fears and your joys and your motives and your emotions. And I want you to imagine for the very first time, as you see him clearly, you now see all things with perfect spiritual clarity. You can actually see for the very first time that you have never had any reason to doubt the faithfulness of your father. Can you imagine that? And then he looks you in the eye and he asks you this question. Why didn't you trust me? Why didn't you trust me? What would that question be in reference to? Here's what I mean. 
What areas of your life are you having difficulty trusting God with? Where is it finances, relationships, school, future plans, health, parenting? See, for Abram, if God were to ask the question, Abram, why didn't you trust me? See, on the surface, it might seem like God would be referring to the, the famine. Why didn't you trust that I was going to provide for you in the famine? Or in reference to God's protection in Egypt, why didn't you trust that I was going to protect you and your wife in Egypt? Why did you have to go and give your wife to Pharaoh? Abram, why didn't you trust me? And I think, yeah, those are good questions, but ultimately, I think the question God would be referring to when he asked that question to Abram, it would have been, why didn't you trust my promise that I gave you in Genesis 12? Why didn't you trust that I would indeed make you into a great nation? See, if Abram was walking in complete confidence and faith in that promise, he would have had reason to trust God with the smaller things in Egypt. See, the famine, it tested Abram's faith in the promise in Genesis 12, where he said, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. That promise was the promise that Abram was doubting when he failed the test. And upon his return, God reaffirms that same promise to him. It's the same promise that he probably believed when he offered the land to Lot. It's the same promise that Abram later believed in when he offered Isaac up on the altar. And it's the same promise that God has invited us to believe today. It's the same promise that we can trust in today through our own trials and testing. How so? How so? Galatians 3. Galatians 3 helps us understand this. Okay? If you want to flip there, feel feel free. But Galatians 3, verse 16, says this. Now the promises were spoken to Abram and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And so God's promise was not given and fulfilled in Abraham alone. It ultimately was given to and fulfilled in Christ. And Paul affirms this in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, it says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, in Christ. That is why it is through Him, through Christ, that we utter our amen to God for His glory. But then in Galatians 3, Paul writes later on in verse 29, here's what he clarifies for us. He says, If you belong to Christ, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Heirs according to the promise. You are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Which means that the promise of God, it is to his people. Not just Abraham. It is to his people. If you belong to Christ, the promise that God gave Abraham, it's the same promise he gives to you. And what is this promise? What has God promised you? What is the promise that we look to in moments of testing and trial? I mentioned there are layers to God's promises. Well, in Genesis 17, we see an additional layer of the promise he gives to Abram. This is what he says in verse 7 through 8 of chapter 17 in Genesis. It says, I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And you and your future offspring, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan, as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. If you want to underline something, underline that word permanent. It means eternal, everlasting. The promise of God, it is eternal and everlasting life with him. He will be our God for all of eternity. It's the promise that God gives Abram in Genesis 12 and is reaffirmed in Genesis 13 and Genesis 17 and Genesis 22. And it's the same promise that's echoed throughout the entire Old Testament and into the New Testament. And we read about this in the book of John. We read about it in Romans. I've just got some verses for you. 
Sit and listen to these promises that God has given us around eternal life. John 3.16 For God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. John 4.14 Whoever drinks from the water that I give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. John 5.24 Truly, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment but has passed from death to life. John 6.40 For this is the will of my Father that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day. John 17.3 This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Romans 5.21 Just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness resulting in eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Titus 3, 6 and 7. He poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. And 1 John 5.11. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. This is the promise. See, God has promised us so much more than strength for today. He has promised us that. But he has also promised us bright hope for tomorrow. And it is this promise that ought to drive our obedience today. It is part of the same promise that God gave Abram. The promise that brought Abram back to a life. Out of Egypt. Up from Egypt. Back into worshipful obedience to his creator. In the passage in Genesis, it concludes in verse 18. It says, So Abram moved his tent and went to live near the oaks of Mamre at Hebron. For he built an altar to the Lord. So Abram took hold of the promise. He moved his tent based on the promise and he worshiped the Lord. And as believers, we must also allow the promise of God, eternal life with him, to be what directs our lives. And a couple weeks ago when Pastor Tim showed us that the life of faith necessitates that we obey the call to go, if you remember that from the beginning of Genesis 12, he asked us in that sermon to consider two questions. He asked us to consider the question, am I involved in going and making disciples? And like Abram, have I left my old life behind? I think those are good questions. But what Genesis 13 reveals to us is that our obedience to God's call, our ability to leave our old life behind and embrace the call to go and make disciples, it hinges on our belief in the promise of God, the promise of eternal life with him. That is what ought to drive our obedience. And so, as we close today, I've got a similar question for you. A question I want you to consider this week. Considering this question is simply the application for this morning. With humility and honesty, think through this question this week. Where are you? Where are you? Here's what I mean. Are you currently thinking about going to a metaphorical Egypt. Okay? Meaning, are you looking around at your situations and you're feeling like maybe it's time for a change of course? And maybe that change of course involves neglecting to do what God has called you to do. Are you currently beginning to doubt in the promise of God? If that's you, I would exhort you, don't go. Life is not found in straying from the Lord. Are you currently in metaphorical Egypt? Have you strayed from a life of faithful obedience? And are you currently pursuing a life of self-provision and self-protection at the expense of others rather than trusting in the provision and protection of your Father? 
Are you currently returning from a metaphorical Egypt? Are you making your way back to a place of trust and reliance on God's promise? Is your course set on returning to life with Christ and experiencing the joy of receiving his grace? Or, generally speaking, are your roots firmly planted in the promise of God? Have you fully embraced that God has called you to everlasting life with him through Christ and that your life is now to be in worshipful, joyful surrender under his loving lordship? Those are the questions I want you to consider this week. At this point in our service, we have an opportunity right now to be reminded of and refreshed by the promise of God that he has given us in his son by partaking in the Lord's Supper together. Okay, The Lord's Supper, it involves the bread and the cup. The bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for you. The cup represents the blood of Christ that was shed for you. And remember, Paul writes that if we belong to Christ, we are heirs according to the promise. If you belong to Christ, the promise of eternal life, it is yours. And the Lord's Supper is an opportunity to reflect on what the promise ended up costing the Son. This is life. Jesus was crucified on the cross. He was nailed to the cross where he bled and died, bearing the weight and the wrath of sin that really all of humanity deserves to bear. Christ did it on our behalf so that whoever puts their faith and trust in Christ would be freed from that wrath and experience eternal life with Christ. If you do not belong to Christ, meaning you have not put your faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you have never repented and received the promise of eternal life, then a couple things that I want you to know. First, we're glad you're here. We're glad that you have joined us this morning to hear God's word and to be among us today. But secondly, I want you to know that the Lord's Supper is not for you. So we would ask that you would abstain from joining us in it. And instead, instead, we ask that you just humbly, honestly consider the gospel of grace. And at this time, you can grab the elements in the seat in front of you. I'll go ahead and pray, and then we can take a moment or two of just silent reflection before the Lord as we receive this meal together. Let's pray.